Good evening. We'll go ahead and get started. Let me uh, open with a prayer, and then we'll jump right into our lesson. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are a gracious God. We thank you for this time together. Pray that uh, you would open our hearts to pour into our hearts what you would have us to know. We thank you for your word. Pray that you would give us the strength and that your spirit would guide us in living it out in our lives. I pray you'd bless this time as we reason together, and may you be glorified in all that we say and all that we do. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we are studying uh, beginnings and endings. We are studying the book of Genesis, and as soon as we finish that in a couple of weeks, we'll begin immediately the book of Revelation. And the reason for doing it is to study those great stories in Genesis, the very beginning of God's redemptive plan of history, and then go to Revelation. And that's just not a way that we've studied it before, and I think you'll see really interesting tie-ins. As always, if you have questions during class, text those in, and I can't guarantee we can answer all of them, but we try to answer uh, as many questions as we can. We have been in the Genesis study, and if you remember, we've moved through the great stories of Genesis, and in our last lesson, we talked about the Abraham story. We talked about Abraham and God's plan of making a covenant and choosing Abraham and his descendants as a way to influence humanity, as a way to move forward his plan. And so in this lesson, though, we're going to hit the pause button because of just popular demand. I want to talk about a subject that's a little bit related, or at least it's a reasonable period in history to stop. But as you know, just because of some recent events, there's been a great deal of interest and controversy, to say the least. Uh, and discussion around the issue of Islamic Jihad and Christian Crusades and the moral equivalency of those two things has been brought into question and it's generated a lot of questions in our congregation and so this is where we typically answer those kinds of things and study those types of things. So we're going to talk about that as a little bit of a detour and then come back into our study of Genesis. In our last lesson we talked about Abraham, we spoke about Ishmael, and Isaac. We talked about Ishmael going on to become a great nation, father of 12 tribes, and according to tradition, based on where he settled, the 12 tribes of Arabia. Isaac becoming the child of promise, and then ultimately the father of the 12 tribes of Israel and the people of Israel through whom God was going to work in history. One of Ishmael's descendants is a man named Muhammad who was born in 570 A.D., lived until 632 A.D., so moving way, way forward in history here. Of course, through the line of Isaac comes Moses, then David, then Mary, then Jesus. And so you see the beginning of Islam uh, with Muhammad. You see the Jewish people through Isaac course, Christians through the Messiah who came through that lineage. And so we're going to continue our story in the future about Genesis moving on. But this seemed like a good time to pause and then talk about uh, that particular issue because both of these things have a common root, if you will, in the story that we talked about in uh, Muhammad. So we're going to talk about the, the Jews onto the Christians then into the re relatively recent history with the Christian Crusades. I want to talk to you a little bit about jihad. According to Islam, the, the right side of that, the descendants of Isaac, the Jews and the Christians are often referred to as the people of the book. 
in that they share the same uh, revelation, to some extent anyway, from God. Islam acknowledges many of the prophets and much of the Old Testament. Many of those stories are repeated, some in different form, in the Quran. So they're called the people of the book. So there's a, an interesting relationship that starts here at Abraham. So we're going to fast forward and we're going to talk about uh, this idea of jihad, the crusades, and modern day. And I'd like to do it in that order. I'd like to talk a little bit about jihad, its historical setting, its Quranic basis to some extent, and a little bit of the history of that. Then I'd like to talk about, move forward in history a little bit and talk about the Christian crusades and some of the history around that. Then I'd like to move to modern times and evaluate our question of the moral equivalency of those things. Are they the same? Are they different? And if so, how are they different? My goal is not to tell you what to think, but in reading all the things that are out there right now, there's just not a great deal of historical balance in this. There's a, a, some of the narratives that are extant today are really pretty oblivious of the history of this. And so I'd like us to put this into a perspective and go back into that time and at least give you some reasonable ways to weigh this and answer the question. So let's start with uh, violent extremism, formerly known as Islamic Jihad. All right, that's a joke. That's just kind of a play on, on our culture today. We're, we're, uh, we're even arguing about the terminology that we have. Uh, but I want to talk to you about this idea of Jihad. And Jihad as it's kind of come to us at this point, jihadism is this idea of striving against the enemies of Islam. It's the struggle to establish a united Islam in the world. And those of us who are willing to, this is a quote, those of you who are willing to trade the life of this world for the life to come to fight in Allah's way, anyone who fights in Allah's way, whether killed or victorious, receive a great reward. This is kind of the common, generally common understanding of jihad. Jihad is that waging of warfare against the enemies of Islam, the unbelievers in Allah, and the reasoning for it is that it's sanctioned by and there's a reward for that pursuit. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But this idea of jihad uh, means literally a striving or a struggle, and it, it involves, uh, it's used a lot in the Quran. 164 times in the Quran this is referred to this, this idea of jihad in the hadith, which the hadith are the uh, sayings and the deeds, the traditions about the prophet Muhammad, which are also authoritative, it appears almost 200 times. And so it's something that's mentioned quite a bit. It has potentially several different meanings. There is the idea of a jihad of the heart, meaning the struggle to purify oneself before Allah, to purify your deeds. There's a jihad of the tongue, and that is uh, sending forth and waging battle, if you will, against the culture of the world to convince them of the rightness of the way of Islam. There's a jihad of the hand, which is a way of taking good deeds to the world and taking the message of Allah to the world through one's deeds. And there's a jihad of the sword which is the way of warfare. It's the battle against the unbelievers and the enemies of Allah, the enemies of Islam. So the word jihad in and of itself can be understood to be manifested in several different ways. But in general, that word jihad is far and away commonly understood as this idea of struggle 
or warfare. In most of the contexts in which you'll see it, it carries much more of an aggressive form. Consequently, you'll see this understood and used and even translated a lot as holy war. You're probably thinking, well, jihad, that means holy war. It's not the only thing it can mean, but it most certainly is a very common thing that it means. The idea of warfare, aggressive warfare, and the idea of sanctioned or holy warfare. And its basis is in the Quran, its basis is in the traditions of the uh, prophet, and then in just a few minutes I want to talk to you about the early, the origins of Islam, and you'll see some of the origins there. I'd like to take just a minute and go through some verses in the Quran, and my intent is not to cherry pick out of this. What I've tried to do, and there are going to be several, but I'd like to show you a bit of a progression. Islamic scholars have taken the chapters in the Quran. There are 114 chapters, they don't call them chapters, but I'm just going to use our terminology. 114 chapters in the Quran. They are not arranged in a chronological order. In other words, the order in which Muhammad is said to have received these revelations and then recited them or spoken them. They are organized in a different order, a little bit more thematic uh, order. But Islamic scholars have listed them in the order in which they happened and kind of trace them to the periods of Muhammad's life. And we're going to walk through those, those large periods of Muhammad's life in a second. But what I want to do is I want to show you kind of some of the talk about this struggle, this jihad idea, and I'd like to do it in a chronological order because there are two significances to that. One, I think you're going to see a bit of an evolution of thought chronologically in this that ties in in many important ways I think with Muhammad's life. Secondly, there's this concept of abrogation. That's con the idea is contained in the Quran itself and the idea being that basically that later revelations can supersede earlier revelations. And we're going to talk, I'm sure we'll get a question about this, but we're going to talk about what is it possible to understand the Quran in a peaceful way. And if that question comes up, we'll talk about that then. But let me set the groundwork, because I want to go through in a chronological order some of the things that uh, the Quran has to say and just make some comments as we go through, okay? First, Quran, uh, this is Surah 109, or chapter 109. This is an early, early time. It's about the 18th uh, out of 114 chapters. So, I mean, this is a relatively early chapter chronologically in the Quran. Say to them, disbelievers, those who don't believe, I do not worship what you worship and you do not worship what I do. I will never worship what you do and you will never worship what I do. You have your religion and I have mine. You'll see this quoted quite a bit as a basis for what the modern idea of tolerance. In other words, that the Quran teaches you have your religion, I have my religion, and the kind of the modern concept of tolerance. That verse is in the Quran, no question about it. Let's move on a little bit. This is in uh, a little bit later period chronologically. It says, argue only in the best way with the people of the book. Now we're talking about the Jews and the Christians specifically when they talk about the people of the book. Except with those of them who act unjustly. Say to them, we believe in what was revealed to us and in what was revealed to you, meaning... We believe, obviously, in the revelation to Muhammad that Muhammad claimed came from God, and they believe in, basically, the New Testament and the Old Testament, to use our terminology. And what was revealed to you, our God and your God is one, we are devoted to him. So 
the Quran's understanding is that the God of Jews, the God of Christians, and the God of Muslims is the same God. It is the God of Abraham. In fact, Muhammad's point of view is that he was restoring the true religion of Abraham. He did not see himself as starting a new religion. He saw himself as restoring the real religion of Abraham and serving Allah, which is the Arabic word for God, serving God in the way that it was always intended from Abraham. Okay? So what we talked about in our last lesson of God's covenant with Abraham and his requirements and his blessings, understanding that is restoring that. So that's basically what this says is, hey, look, we have a lot in common, Jews and Christians, and so it's, it's a fairly peaceable situation. That verse is in the Koran. Number two, this is a little bit later. This is in what's called the early Medina period, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but this is a little bit yet later. Fight in Allah's cause against those who wage war against you, but do not commit aggression, because Allah does not love aggressors. Slay them wherever you come upon them. In other words, be very aggressive in your wars. Drive them away from wherever they drove you away, for oppression is even worse than killing. Now you begin to see a bit of an evolution here in the sense that defensive war is, is acceptable, and in fact, very aggressive war, as long as you are not the instigator, the oppressor. And so you'll see this corresponds very well with, with what's happening in Muhammad's life, but you begin to see the movement from very peaceful sounding coexistence kind of, I hate to use that word because it's so co-opted, but kind of coexistence sounding versus to, well, you know what, if you're being oppressed, if you're not the aggressor, then you can pursue warfare uh, in defense, if you will, or in liberation. Again, a, a little bit later. So when you meet in battle, those who disbelieve, now we're just talking about all unbelievers, smite their necks, then when you have overcome them, make them prisoners, and afterwards set them free as a favor or for ransom till the war lays down its burden. In other words, till the war is over. So this now, you, I'm, kinda, I'm not trying to rush through this, but I just want to kind of show you this progression as we go through chronologically. Now when you are fighting the unbelievers, now you begin to talk about this idea of smite their necks, take them prisoners. You can, it does uh, in certain circumstances then, give the idea of ransom. I point this out to you because in modern times, let me skip forward to probably the most prominent uh, thing in the news today is ISIS, certainly not the only jihadi group in the world today, but certainly gaining a lot of attention, is you see a, a lot of ransoms. And from their point of view, they are taking captives of disbelievers in the war. And so this idea of cutting off their heads and the idea of ransom is something that they understand to be rooted in Quranic teaching. Does that make sense? I just want you to know this is where those ideas come from for them. They understand that to be rooted in the Quran. Again, in this uh, Medina phase, when, the, when thy Lord revealed to the angels, I am with you, so make firm those who believe. Allah says this, I will cast terror into the hearts of those who disbelieve, so smite above the necks and smite every fingertip of them. This is generally interpreted to mean that when you are waging war, waging war in such a way that removes the enemy's ability to wage war against you. 
In other words, this idea of, again, of cutting off the heads or striking at the heads and the idea of the fingertips is generally understood of cutting off the hands, you cannot wield a weapon. So you begin to see this idea of not only when it's okay to wage war, but how it's okay to wage war. And again, I want you to, to see that when you pick up the newspaper and you see certain things being done, those folks doing them root them in this kind of, of basis. All right? I'm not making a comment at this point anyway, are they right or are they wrong about Islam? You should understand this is why those things are happening. And some of the language that you'll hear coming out of the Islamic jihadi groups like ISIS, you'll hear language that uses phrases like this. This is where they come from. They come from the Quran, and that's what informs their understanding of how uh, Islam should be pursued. Again, now you're at near the end. This is the, out of the, the hundred, these are a couple, the next two are really famous verses out of the Quran. Now we're to the 113th out of 114 chapters chronologically, so we're close to the end of Muhammad's life, we're close to the end of his career. This is a very uh, expansionistic, warlike period. When the four forbidden months are over, wherever you encounter the idolaters, idolaters are people who disbelieve, kill them, seize them, besiege them, wait for them at every lookout post, but if they repent, maintain the prayer, and pay the prescribed alms or the tax, uh, then let them go their way, for Allah is most forgiving and merciful. You begin to see now that there are no restrictions on this. This is really kind of an open war wherever you find the idolaters. Now we're not talking about, at this point, are you being uh, aggressive? And in fact, historically, you're going to find this is a very expansionist time. In other words, Islam, Muslims are not being attacked at this time. Muslims are overrunning, at this particular time, the Arabian Peninsula. And so the idea is that you need to confront, attack, we're talking about jihad in terms of holy war, attack them wherever you find them. There is the possibility for them to become subject peoples. We'll talk about that because historically that is, is a way for it to happen. You also see that today. Not everyone who's an unbeliever is killed. Not everyone is beheaded or crucified or burned or all the various inventive ways that you see uh, people being killed today, many of them were subjected to, uh, they were considered to be subject people. Okay? This, uh, that's where this comes from. This is, uh, again, the next to the last uh, surah chronologically. Now this is specifically turning to the Jews and the Christians. The prior one was any, dis any disbeliever. But what about the Jews and the Christians? There's always been a, a little bit different relationship with the people of the book. Because according to Islam, they share the same God. There's some similarities. Now, Muslims have traditionally understood that Jews have corrupted the Old Testament and are not worshiping God correctly. That Christians radically get things wrong in a number of ways that I'll show you in a sec second. But there have been times in certain part, times in history, in certain parts of the world where Muslims have been very tolerant of Jews and Christians as at least fellow people of the book. This said, fight those people of the book who do not truly believe in Allah on the last day, who do not forbid what Allah and his messenger have forbidden, who do not obey the rule of justice until they pay the tax and agree to submit. And so this is a much more aggressive stance 
and you'll see, I'll tell you some events right around this time where there were very aggressive stances taken towards Jews and Christians as well as just general non-believers. Here is the idea is aggressively fight them unless they become Muslims, and if they won't, then you should tax them and make them submit, and they can become subject people. So those were really kind of the options at that time. The specific issue, let me cover two more things, and then if we have questions, we'll stop there, because I wanted to give you enough verses from the Koran, and in that order, to understand why some people can say, well, the Koran says this, and it sounds very peaceful. Well, the Koran says this, and it sounds very warlike. And both of those statements are true. But I think it's really useful for you to see this progression chronologically, and then match that up with some of the history. Jews and Christians in particular uh, are spoken about in this same time frame in the Koran. They do blaspheme who say, this is very late, this is the 112th out of 114 chapters. So again, this is very, very late, some of the last uh, of Muhammad's revelations. They do blaspheme who say Allah is Christ, in other words, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Son of Mary, but Christ said, O children of Israel, in other words, Muslim, Islam understood Jesus as a prophet, not as great a prophet as Muhammad, as the Messiah, but certainly not the Savior, certainly not the Son of God. That they believe that Jesus taught, hey, worship Allah, who's my Lord and your Lord. Whoever joins other gods with Allah, Allah will fit him the, forbid him the garden and fire will be his abode. In other words, you're not going to heaven, you're going to hell. If you join other gods to Allah. Joining other gods to Allah is meaning is saying Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So what Christians understand to be the basic truth is blasphemy, according to the Koran. And then again, they do blaspheme who say Allah is one of three in a trinity. For there is no God except this one God. If they do not desist from their word of blasphemy, a grievous penalty will befall the blasphemers among them. The penalty for blasphemy is death. In other words, I want you to understand it's both non-believers and Christians and Jews who are lumped into this category of blasphemy or being the subject of this violent struggle. So I know there's a lot of Quranic verses. I hope that it's helpful to you a little bit to get those in chronological order because now when we talk a little bit about the life of Muhammad, you're going to see why these, these things, I think, you're going to see why these things kind of come out the way they do. Does that make sense? So we're talking about the idea of jihad, which is struggle, we're talking about its Quranic basis. Now I want to talk about its historical basis a little bit and uh, then we'll move on to the Crusades, but I'm trying to just give you a little bit of historical perspective. Question? Um, yes, can you tell us again when Muhammad lived in relation to Christ and what his perspective was on Jesus Christ? Yeah, when did Muhammad live in, in uh, relation to Christ and what was his perspective? Muhammad lived, he was born in 570 AD, so 570 years after the birth of Jesus. So many centuries later, uh, he died in, uh, we'll tell you that in a minute, but he, he lived till 632, so he's several centuries after Jesus. He is familiar with the Old Testament. He is familiar with the New Testament. He's spoken to Christians, he's spoken to many Jews. So according to the Koran, According to Muhammad, Jesus is one of many prophets that God sent. He is indeed the 
Messiah, but not in the way you understand it and not in the way Christians understand it. A lot of times the Quran will use the same words, it'll tell the same stories, but mean something quite different by it. So they understand Issa or Jesus as a prophet, not as great a prophet as Muhammad, but someone who came to tell them you need to turn back to the true relationship. Do not believe that he was crucified on a cross. Do not believe that he bore the sins of the people. Do not believe that he is the son of God. Do not believe that he is the doorway to redemption. Do not believe that you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Don't believe any of that about Jesus. Un understand that that is something that Christians have made up. But Jesus does appear in the Quran as a prophet. So that's the time frame. Many centuries after Christ, He's familiar with the Old Testament, familiar with the New Testament, and that's the perspective on Jesus. Good question. Tell us a little bit about the Quran, when it was written, who wrote it. The Quran itself, without going into too much detail, but I think enough for what you want, in 610 AD, so Muhammad is 40 years old, and lots happened up to that point, but let me just try to stick to the question here. Basically, when he's 40 years old, he has an experience, which terrified him, by the way, where he believed that an angel spoke to him and gave him a revelation from Allah or a revelation from God. At first, it terrified him. They came on. He began to understand, I've been chosen as the vehicle uh, for the messenger of God, if you will, to bring these things to the world. And so he would receive these revelations and he would recite them. He would speak them, which is what Quran means. He would recite these things to people and they were transmitted orally for two generations basically of caliphs, of successors. And they began to be written down and codified a couple of generations after Muhammad by uh, some of his successors. So the Quran was written down later, it was recited, and it was oral during his lifetime and during the early stages of Islam afterwards. So they, uh, the various 114 different, each chapter is a revelation that he then spoke. So there were 114 of them. They happened between 610 AD when he was 40 years old and 632 when he died. Okay, so that's kind of the chronology of that. Why is the Quran less credible than the Bible? Why is the Quran less credible than the Bible? Well, you're going to get a Christian's answer to that. Uh, I'll give you the short version of that. To a lot of people historically have claimed, I have had a revelation from God. In other words, Muhammad's not the only person that said, hey, God spoke to me and told you to do that. In fact, I hate to tell you this, but in the last six months, several people have been in my office telling me that uh, God has given them a revelation, and it usually involves something I'm supposed to do. And they might be right. They might be right. But, I mean, historically speaking, there have been people who have said, I've had a revelation from God, and this is what God says. The way Christians have always, uh, and Jews for this matter, have always evaluated that is, is that in a variety of ways, is how can one know? The best way to know is, is that does this speak things that are consistent with what God has already revealed? Does the Bible itself predict that? Is it open to further revelations from God? 
are, are they authentic? In other words, they certainly need to be consistent. If you look at the, what we call the Old Testament and New Testament, you see, and that's what we're going through with Genesis and Revelation, you're going to see by looking at the two endpoints, you go, this makes perfect sense. This is the same God. He is carrying out the exact same plan. He is bringing things to culmination. There's no room for the Koran or anything else in that. So that's reason number one. Reason number two, if you read the Koran, I think that will speak largely for itself in the sense that this, there are many things that people have published and said, oh, this is God. You can read that and it's really not hard to understand uh, that, you know what, this is not the God of the Old Testament. This is not the God of the New Testament. So that's a second reason. The third reason is many critics have pointed out many, many different uh, issues and problems with the Koran. And many people have pointed out how this reads like, and historically it looks like, someone who is telling you things that are very human in origin. So just a few reasons why uh, people might see the Koran as, as certainly not credible. I mean, that's just one of many reasons for that, certainly from a Christian or a Jewish point of view. Do the Muslims read the Koran in chronological order? And if not, why not? Well, I'm, uh, do they read it in chronological order? And if not, why not? That, I, I mean, I appreciate the question, but I don't want you to make too much of the chronological order because I'm not trying to say to you it needs to be read this way. I organized it that way because I want you to see how it tracks with the history. So we don't read our Bible in chronological order in the sense that in your New Testament, the letters aren't necessarily arranged in the order in which they were written. Of course, they were all written within a very short period of time, but they're not necessarily arranged in the order in which they're written. They're arranged in the order of how long they were so people could get them on scrolls. So we can buy a chronological Bible, which just shuffles them around, but we read them in the traditional order. Muslims tend to read the Koran in the traditional order, and there's, that's not necessarily an issue. My purpose in arranging them chronologically is simply to show you the evolution of thought, and you'll be able then to match that up with the history, and I think you'll draw some really interesting conclusions from that. Were Isaac and Ishmael both considered to be Jews? Were Isaac and Ishmael both considered to be Jews? No, they're both considered to be the offspring of Abraham, but if you remember in our story, God promises Abraham, you're going to have a child, and I'm going to deliver these promises to you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you this land. And through you, all the people of the earth will be blessed. And Abraham says, hey, that's probably a good idea. Sarah says, have a child with Hagar. We talked about the cultural normalcy of that at the time. Have this child, Ishmael, whom Abraham loves, by the way. God comes to him and says, hey, by the way, like I told you, you're going to have a child. He goes, hey, already took care of that. While you were not looking, got a child, here he is, Ishmael, great little kid, you're going to love him. God says, in fact I do, because of you, I'll make him into a great nation, but that is not what I'm going to, that is not how I'm going to deliver this promise, it's going to be through Isaac. Now, by the way, everything I'm telling you right now, the Koran says is false, that the Jews have corrupted this in your Bible, and that Ishmael actually is the one who's going to receive these promises. But the Bible says, no. God's going to deliver this promise through Isaac. So, I mean, this is kind of a technicality, but trying to answer the spirit of the question. The child of promise is Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, which we'll talk about in our next lesson, by the way. The 12 tribes of Israel. 
not Ishmael and the 12 tribes of Arabia. So is he a child of Abraham? Yes. Is he a child of the promise? No. Is he a Jew? No, not, not really. I mean, not as we understand that term, which is the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 tribes of Israel. So good question. So why did God bless Ishmael if it wasn't part of his plan? Yeah, as a matter of fact, the, the scripture that we talked about in our last lesson said why. Uh, Abraham said, oh, if only you could bless Ishmael, meaning I already have a son. I love this kid. Can, can we work this out? And God said, because he is your son, even though you didn't listen to me, you took matters into your own hand, God's grace, he said, because he is your son, I will bless him but this is not my plan. So he becomes blessed, he becomes a nation by God's grace. In other words, simply because he is a child of Abraham, even though this is not God's plan. So he blesses him, but he does not deliver his promises through Ishmael. Now, that obviously, if you're a Muslim, you're gonna see that very differently. You're gonna wanna say, no, the Bible's wrong about that, the Jews made that all up. Actually, the story is, it's all about Ishmael. So is Islam the false religion spoken of in Revelation? Is Islam the false religion? We'll just hold that till we get to Revelation because I'd rather answer that in context. I mean, sometimes sound bites are just really misleading. Could Islam be uh, the false religion? We talk about the prophet, false prophet. There are different opinions about that, and I'd rather just tell you the various opinions. And when we get there, you'll go, ah, this is, this is making a lot of sense. So we'll hold that until we get there in Revelation. According to the Quran, did Muhammad practice miracles? According to the Quran, did Muhammad practice miracles? Uh, I'm not a Quranic scholar. I mean, I've read the Quran several times, but I'm not a Quranic scholar. To, that is not, I do not, not to my knowledge in the Quran. Uh, but I will say this definitively that is not the Quranic understanding of Muhammad. In other words, he's not thought of as a miracle worker. He's thought of as kind of a, the messenger of God, meaning the last prophet, the one who's really going to bring you the, the straight scoop. And he is a warrior, one that's going to unite people and go confront the world, frankly, in jihad with this struggle against the unbelievers in the world. So Muhammad is not seen as a scholar. He's not seen as a miracle worker. And to be fair, that's not the Quranic picture of Muhammad at all. Okay? Do they teach their children the Quran like we teach our children the Bible? Do they teach their children the Quran like we teach our children the Bible? Well, that depends on who you're talking about because Islam is not a unified thing. It's a very diverse uh, religion in some sense. There are people who are Muslims that may not teach their children the Quran much at all, like there are people who are Christians that hardly teach their children uh, the Bible at all. But let's just talk for a moment about devout Muslims and devout Christians. They do indeed study the Quran, uh, and in effect, there's still a tradition, a large tradition for memorization of the Quran. Not that everybody memorizes the Quran, but that's still considered a very high thing. Now, Christians consider it an important thing to memorize Scripture, not quite in the same way. But yes, I mean, devout Muslims teach their children the Quran. A lot of thing in the news nowadays about the madrasas, the the, the study halls, the schools, and how they not only teach the Quran, at the same time they teach a particular worldview and an attitude. 
And so one of the things you'll see coming out of Europe today is a real concern uh, from European authorities about what are people being radicalized when they're taught the Koran in mosques? Are people, are madrasas turning out very radicalized Muslims who understand the Koran in the same way that ISIS does, for example? So yes, there's very, in, in devout circles, there's very much the idea of transmitting the Koran and the life of Muhammad, actually, because not only is the Koran authoritative, but other much later writings about things Muhammad did and said are also authoritative. Okay, well, let's move on, uh, see if we can get through as much of this as we can in this. Let's talk about Muhammad for a minute. Uh, talk about just a little bit of early history on this idea of jihad. So you see the grounding of the idea of jihad in the Quran. This is a map that, uh, and I have a couple, I can't tell which one you'll see better, but this is pretty good. This is a map of around 750 AD. So. Muhammad dies in 632, and what this basically shows is the incredibly rapid military expansion of Islam. So let me talk just a little bit about uh, Muhammad's life, and then we'll get to the rest of this map. But you can see just from the color coding how explosive the imperialistic move of Islam was, and it was indeed imperialistic. I mean, they conquered huge part of the known world in a very relatively short time. This is the the conquest just up to 750 A.D. So Muhammad, uh, from 570 to 610, he's 40 years old, he begins having these visions. He begins to tell people in Mecca, because that's where he's living, about these visions, about this one God, and he begins to tell them that they're all wrong, because at that time the Arabian tribes are all pagans and they have a lot of different ideas. He begins to tell them about this one God, he begins to convict them, and they kicked him out. They basically said, you're out of here. He had some protection, his uncle dies, and now all of a sudden he's in danger and they make him flee to Medina. We're in Saudi Arabia now. It goes from Mecca north to Medina in 622. And this is the beginning, by the way, of the Muslim calendar. This is a significant event when he is expelled from Mecca, goes to Medina with just a handful of followers. He gets to Medina and he begins then to build this Islamic community all the while he's receiving these uh, uh, visions, you know, he's receiving what he believes to be these words from God. And some of these, particularly the ones in Mecca, are the more peaceful coexistence, like, look, God wants us all to get along, just everybody believe in Allah, let go of all your other gods. You know, those are those early sayings that are much more peaceful sounding and conciliatory. He gets cast out, he goes to Medina, you begin in the Medina phase to see chronologically that it gets much more aggressive. The first 18 months after he's in Medina, uh, gets his group together, they begin raiding merchant caravans. Uh, right there in Saudi Arabia, that's on a trade route, and the trades are all going to Mecca. Mecca is a huge hub for trading at that point in time. In fact, one of the problems Muhammad had was he's cutting into business, because they, they, were, they needed to sell a bunch of gods. They needed to be a clearinghouse for coexistence. He begins raiding the merchant caravans to fund him and to build up everything his people have left behind. And so he begins to get assets from uh, just raiding and you know, killing the caravan people and stealing the goods. And so they do that for a little while. The Meccans then come out and say, look, you can't do this. It was bad enough to kick you out. Now we're going to fight you. 
And so they begin to have some battles with Muhammad, and he doesn't fare well at the beginning. But you begin to see some of those verses that are much more like, hey, it's okay to fight those who don't believe, and those people in Mecca didn't believe. And you begin to see much more martial idea, and this idea of the struggle being very much about warfare. In 624, there were some Jewish tribes in Medina, and there were three in particular, the smallest and the weakest. He expelled all those Jews out of Medina, confiscated all their possessions, and took that money and, and split it amongst the Muslims. In 627, a few years later, the largest Jewish tribe there had between 600 and 800 men. And he took the men in small groups and they dug this trench and they forced them to sit down. They beheaded them, kicked them into the trench, brought in some more, and beheaded six or eight hundred, all the men in that Jewish tribe. They sold the women and the children into slavery, confiscated their possessions, took all that money and divided it amongst the Muslims and began to build up and began to build their warriors and people began to join them. I don't know if this sounds similar to you or not, if you're doing a little flash forward in time, but this building up, this rapid buildup of assets, this very aggressive technique against the enemies of Islam and this militaristic expansion, when you see groups doing that today in the news, this is exactly what they're modeling and what they're looking to. My point here is I'm not preaching to you about anything. I want you to understand their motivations are grounded in the Quranic basis for a violent warfare, and they're grounded in the life of Muhammad and the example of the prophet, particularly ISIS, even more so than Al-Qaeda. But if you listen to what, uh, and I don't know that you see this much in, in our news, but when you listen to what the uh, spokesperson, for example, for ISIS has to say, they talk a lot about the idea of staying true to the prophet, trying to behave in a way that is very prophetic. This is what they're talking about. That is emulating what the early Muslims did. So Muhammad uh, ends up you know, killing that Jewish tribe, selling the women and children into slavery. Other Jewish communities he allowed to live but if they would give half of their annual income to the Muslims, then they could be a subject people. So this is what's going on in Muhammad's life. He does a brilliant job of uniting and pulling together some of the warring Arab tribes. They joined his cause and at least nominally said, hey, I believe in there, we're ready to fight with you and we're ready to, to reap the rewards of this conquest. And so this military machine begins to form. Muhammad understands it as a religious machine and a military machine. And so they began to burst. And so by 632, he went to Mecca and conquered Mecca. And then you'll see he basically, by the time he died, has united and conquered the Arabian Peninsula. His successors spread out over time between then and 750, all the way through Egypt and Syria and Persia, that's Iran, up into Armenia, all through northern Africa, up into Spain, and almost just a hair's breadth kept from uh, conquering the Franks, which is France. And so you notice that in a relatively short period of time, <clears throat> there's some serious holy war going on here. And they're growing and growing. The people that they conquered didn't all necessarily become Muslims, but they joined the cause one way or another, either as subject people or at least nominally saying, I joined. Their techniques 
looked very much like the early techniques. It was very brutal. It was warfare. And it was jihad. It was the idea of a holy war to spread that. Muhammad's quoted in the tradition as saying, the best jihad is the one in which your horse is slain and your blood is spilled. The Quranic purpose and the historical purpose of Islam was to spread the true faith in any way possible, but certainly militarily in a huge way here, and to make all the world become one caliphate. In other words, all under the rule of Muhammad or Muhammad's successor, everybody's going to become a Muslim or you're going to be a subject person. The goal of this, according to the Quran, and certainly the historical goal, was to conquer the world for Islam, to attack the unbelievers. Here's an interesting thing that uh, I want you to point out because this also shows up in the news, is that temporary truces were allowed with people who were unbelievers, but peace was not allowed. In other words, it is a state of continual warfare until you are conquered. They did make truces, but they never made peace treaties. Because uh, as I heard a Navy SEAL on the news the other night talking about the situation in the Middle East now, and just thought this was a very clever and very interesting historical thing to say. He said, we may not be at war with ISIS, but they are most certainly at war with us. That's actually a pretty historically sweeping statement that would true in almost any time in history. In this time, the world may not have been at war with Islam, but Islam was most certainly at war with anyone who didn't believe. So that's kind of the, uh, the time period of Muhammad. I know that's really quick and it's really a short synopsis, but you can see from the time in Mecca when he's trying to preach returning to the religion, he gets cast out to Medina and those early Medina things get a little more like if you're attacked, you can defend yourself. And then by the end of the time when he's actually conquering the Arabian Peninsula, you get things like uh, chapter 9, the sword verse, wherever you find the unbelievers, attack them and slay them. So I wanted you to be able to see the Quranic expression and the historical expression is going well together because that story is going to be very different for Christianity. But I wanted you to see how those two things work together. And then capping that off, let me fast forward uh, to modern times. In the 20th century, here's a statement from the Muslim Brotherhood. Muslim Brotherhood, uh, very radical group, very much a jihadi group, but compared to some of the groups operating now, these guys look like kindergartners. But here's, in the 20th century, here's part of their charter. God is our objective, Allah is our objective, the Quran is our constitution, the prophet is our leader, struggle or jihad is our way of life, and death for the sake of God is the highest of our aspirations. So you catch that same tone as in early Islam, and there's a thread of jihad that runs all through historically in Islam. Does that make sense? That's essentially uh, the Quranic and the historical idea of jihad. It's not something that happened in the 21st century. It's something that's happened in every century since 632 AD to the present time. So what you see happening right now may be different in some respects, in that it's more brutal perhaps, or at least more in the news than the past 50 years, it is not more brutal, it is not significantly different than jihad that has happened throughout the centuries. Okay? That's jihad. 
And I can tell from our time that we are not going to get through all of this, uh, but I think to understand this, this properly, it's important to get a good feel for the historical sweep, because the concern that I have is that we at least get the history right. In other words, we don't just glibly look back with a narrative that says, you know what, what the Christians did in the Crusades and Jihad are in some ways the same. I want you to, to make up your own mind understanding the scope and the sweep. So we'll take a couple more questions and then we'll pause and, and we're going to have to finish this in our next lesson. And you, you'll see the, the other balancing side. But it's not possible to really intelligently think about this subject and understand what you're being said without at least knowing what actually happened historically. What does the Koran say? What actually happened in early Islam? And I hope you can realize that what's happening on the pages of the newspaper today, if you read the newspaper in 700 AD, you'd be reading the exact same thing. So I want you to see the historical scope. And a little bit later in the lesson, we talk about the Crusades. I'll show you what Islam is doing at that time as well, and you'll see it's merely a continuation of this. So a couple questions. Are they still adding revelations to the Koran, and are there also other prophets? Are they adding revelations to the Koran? No. Are there other prophets? No. Muhammad, according to Islam, is considered to be the last and the greatest prophet of God to bring the full story to you. There are no further revelations. There are no other prophets, according to Islam. Do Muslims typically depend on a leader's opinion about their religion and what the Quran says to a large degree than their own self-interpretation of the Quran? Right. That's a good question. Uh, let me kind of close by answering that and a related question because I'm going to ask the same question in our next lesson when we talk about the Crusades, because it's fair to ask this question both ways. So do they, do they research the Quran or do they listen to leaders' opinion? There is a diversity in Islam of how one would practice Islam. There are some similarities. Jihad is a portion of all of, of Islam, not necessarily violent jihad, but the idea of jihad is in every strain of Islam, this idea of a struggle. Generally speaking, Broadly, broadly speaking, people tend to follow certain teachers, certain schools of thought. For example, I'll just give you one example. Back in the, the late, late Middle Ages, a couple hundred years ago, there was a movement called the Wahhabi movement, and it was a restoration movement to get back to the original Islam. We would consider Wahhabis. The Wahhabi Sunnis today are kind of, uh, think Al-Qaeda, in other words, pretty radical, very fundamental, very go-back-to-the-beginning understanding of Sharia law and the Koran and forget all this modernity and this uh, relativism and quit watching Western television. It, this is going back to strict Islam. That is the basis of the religion for Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is basically Wahhabi, Sunni Islam, very conservative. In fact, in Saudi Arabia today, Sharia law in many ways follows the Koran. Even though they're an ally of the United States, if you understand how they punish certain things to Western ideas of justice, it's brutal. It's very Koranic. It's very ancient, if you will. So my point is, is that that movement is how many people then follow the Koran, and that gave spawn to a number of things. There are different clerics that issue decrees and interpret the Koran for people. Many people follow schools of thought or particular teachers. 
But here's an interesting question. Is it possible to understand Islam as a peaceful religion? Because I want to ask the same question, frankly, in light of the Crusades, and I think it's a fair question. Is it possible? It is obviously possible to be a Muslim and say, I am going to exercise this religion in a peaceful way. I understand jihad to be a peaceful struggle. Is that the way to understand the Koran? I would argue no. All of history says that is not the primary way people have understood the Koran. I'm not telling you that they are wrong. That's how they see the Koran. That's how they're going to uh, approach it. Most Muslims today want to distance themselves from the brutality and the things that are happening with ISIS. They're not all necessarily peaceful. You saw an awful lot of people dancing and celebrating after 9-11. So there are quite a bit of a spectrum. But a lot of times we hear Islam is actually a peaceful religion that's been corrupted. That's a narrative that's really hard to sustain historically. I'm not saying to you that there aren't Muslims that practice that religion very peacefully. They absolutely do. But to say that's the religion of Islam and everything else is just a few crackpots, very, very hard to maintain that. In fact, it's impossible to maintain that in the light of history in the light of the Quran. Now, don't read into that my saying to you that, well, all Muslims must be bad or and all Muslims must be stand behind this kind of violence. They absolutely do not. Please do not read that into what I'm saying. I'm just saying if you look at it historically, it's difficult to distance those portions of Islam from what actually happened early on in Islam. There is an argument to be made that that's actually the heart of Islam, of what it actually is. Obviously, Muslims are going to disagree about that, and they're certainly going to disagree with me. I'm going to let you think about it for yourself. You've seen a snapshot of what the Quran says. You've seen how Muhammad behaved. You've seen the early expansion of Islam, and I'll show you later how that's continued to today. So I think it's, it's almost impossible to make a rational argument that this is not an, a fundamental part of Islam. It is not saying that all Muslims believe this or behave this way, so please don't hear that. Okay? Should we as Christians be reading the Quran so that we know and understand what's going on today better? Should we read the Quran to understand and know what's going on better today? I, I mean, you're free to read it. And you, you can, there are many good translations. I have three or four. Email me. I'll tell you my favorite translation. But bottom line, no, because however you read it, ISIS has already read it. And they already understand it in a particular way. The reason for us to talk about it is I'd like for us as rational, intelligent people, because we're Christians, we clearly do not believe the Koran is inspired. We clearly do not believe the things that Muslims believe about Muhammad. I absolutely do not believe that to be true. But to help us in understanding why those people do what they are doing, I think it's useful from that point of view. But I don't think it's useful in any way in personal study. So I, I would not recommend that. I'd recommend spending all the time you can in your Bible. Well, I hope that that wasn't boring to you. I hope that you, you see that as kind of a basis. Now when you pick up the paper, watch for some key words. You see beheading, you see ransoms, you see some of this language. I hope you see that comes directly from the Koran. It comes, and a lot of the behavior comes directly from the early, early experiences of Islam. So some of what you're seeing practiced today is being very much modeled after the prophet himself. 
The question that comes up to us next is, okay, fine. How did Christianity then get to its point in the Crusades, and how are the Crusades any different than Jihad? Because in the Crusades, there were atrocities. The Crusades also has a narrative about it, and the, the narrative is, is they're doing exactly the same thing. They're doing some bad things, but they're doing something really different. And that's what we'll talk about next time, and then you can vote and decide, are these the same things, and what am I going to then do with it when we go to the modern world? Because I think the answer to that question really influences how we're going to confront ISIS in the world, how we're going to confront the jihad in the world. Their point of view, we're doing exactly the same thing they're doing. Unfortunately, certain Americans think we're doing exactly the same thing they're doing. My purpose is give you a little historical understanding and you can make an informed choice. I'll see you next time. <laughs>